0: This is episode 284 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can access bonus episodes of our show and other special history extras when you join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that shakespeare life. If you're an educator in Shakespeare history or a massive Shakespeare history enthusiast who really likes to try out some of the history you learn about here on our show, then consider joining Experience Shakespeare. That's the membership platform here at That Shakespeare Life, offering digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Henry Hansen, PhD. I'm a soccer scientist and I have researched the mechanics of the 16th century football found at Stirling Castle. Another great method for studying the life of William
1: Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The scion, as we call it, forms the branches and the fruit. And this keeps the variety the same. They did this in Shakespeare's time, and we use the same method today.
2: And now, here's Cassidy.
0: The air is turning crisp outside and the orchards are ripe with bright red apples. As you're going out to enjoy some fresh apples in the beautiful autumn weather, you may be delighted to know that Shakespeare enjoyed this same tradition as well, with a variety of apples being available in England for the 16th and 17th century, and they were highly valuable fruits used in a wide variety of ways. Shakespeare uses the word apple in his works a total of nine times, including references to crab apples, rotten apples, and the apple of your eye, among others. The word apple was used to describe the round edible fruit that we know today, but it could also apply to other fruits. In fact, some 16th and 17th century references use apple as a generic term for any fruit that included a nut or a pit in the center, as opposed to a berry, for example. There's even one expression from the Middle Ages called apple of paradise, which refers to a banana. The apple fruit features prominently in religious artwork for the 16th century, as well as being useful for cooking, apple cider, and of course, the famous Christmas beverage enjoyed in Shakespeare's lifetime, apple wassail. To explore the history of apples in England, who exactly brought them over to Europe, and how they crossed the Atlantic to North America with English colonists is our guests, Nigel and Allison Deacon. They are here to be sharing with us not only how apples were cooked for Shakespeare's lifetime, but other more surprising places you might find them in the 16th and 17th century as well. Nigel and Alison Deegan both worked in education for 30 years, Nigel teaching chemistry and Alison teaching math, ICT, and German. In 2002, they started researching and then locating the heritage apple varieties from Leicestershire in the center of England, finding and reintroducing all but one of the 14 varieties originating from the county. Their website put them in touch with many others also interested in heritage and unusual apples, and they now have a collection of 200 rare varieties. They have a particular interest in wild apples and red-fleshed apples and are now Involved in a project with a leading nursery in the UK breeding new apple varieties for the garden and retail markets. You can find links to Nigel and Alison's website in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Nigel and Alison. Welcome to that Shakespeare life.
1: Hello, nice to be here.
3: Hello, and hello from England. It's very nice to be here with you.
0: Wonderful to have a piece of England coming and sitting in the studio with us today. And I want to dive in by asking about wild apples in England. I know there's a wide history here with this question, but I wonder if there were any native apples that were growing on trees in England for Shakespeare's lifetime.
3: Well, the the short answer is yes, of course, there were wild apples, but the apple isn't actually native to England. So you need to know how apples got here in the first place before we start talking about wild apples. Some of our well-known apples arose as chance seedlings. So in a sense, some of our present apples are actually wild apples. Um, I don't know whether people realise that the apple evolved in Kazakhstan over millions of years. And there are still pockets of fruit forests there with wild apples of all sorts, all sizes, large to small, all colours, green to dark purple skin, almost black, some of them, bitter to sweet and with all sorts of different flavours. And there's also sour apples, which are known as crabs. So in prehistoric times, apples dispersed the seeds, which meant they didn't get far and stayed more or less in Kazakhstan. But later they were spread by man. So there were important trade routes from Asia to Europe, including the Silk Road. And the fruit would have been taken by the traders and eaten on the way. So when you eat apples, you tend to throw away the core and apple trees grow from the pips if it's cold enough. So that enabled the fruit to travel to Europe and eventually apples reached Rome. From Rome, they spread to all parts of the Roman Empire and apples still spread like this today. So we see them along old roads and railway banks in hedges and even new roads. It's not long before you see apple apple trees growing there. And some of these ancient roads have been in use since the Romans were here. We used to drive along an old road, an old Roman road, which is called the Foss Way, to see my parents who live about 70 miles away. And one year, on the 4th of January, we counted 80 apple trees, with no leaves, but actually full of fruits. So that's quite late in the season and gives you an idea about how many apple trees there must be. So to answer your original question, there were two sorts of apples growing wild in Shakespeare's day. The large sweet apples, descended from those in Kazakhstan with variable quality, but often quite good. And then crab apples, which haven't really changed much over centuries, They're always sour and green, and they also come from Kazakhstan. And the sweet apples today in the supermarkets are descended from the original sweet apples in Kazakhstan. Modern ones have a much narrower range of flavours. They've been bred to be firm, sweet and juicy. I'm afraid to say that mass production leads to uniformity rather than diversity.
0: Were there apple orchards or apple farmers who were growing this fruit commercially in the 16th and 17th century? Or did people just generally take advantage of some of these 80 trees growing along a particular road and and go pick them from somewhere like that?
1: Well, there weren't commercial orchards in the way we mean today. Uh, Most orchards were actually privately owned. The trees were grafted and planted by landowners on private estates. And other orchards were planted by the church uh, in rectory gardens and in monasteries. So the people in the upper layers of society had their orchards, but there were very few commercial apples for the common people. Um, Costermongers might sell a few apples here and there, but commercial apple production hadn't really started. There would have been apple trees growing from pips in the hedgerows, as Alison has described, the quality variable, some good some not so good, but this didn't really matter very much because most apples were cooked anyway, which tends to mellow the flavour, and even a poor apple will taste okay after you've cooked it. Another important point is that if you plant a seed, you always get a new variety. Apples don't breed true, so you can't reproduce an apple tree by planting the pips. If you plant the pips, you'll get an apple tree, but the apples will be different. From the one you started with. To copy an apple tree properly, you have to clone it. And this is done by a process called grafting. You take a cutting from the tree that you want to copy, and then you splice a tiny part of it onto another tree called a rootstock, or simply called a stock. And the stock supplies the roots. The cutting, or the scion, as we call it, forms the branches and the fruit. And this keeps the variety the same. They did this in Shakespeare's time, and we use the same method today. In fact, all commercial apple trees are constructed from these two parts. Graft, stock, and scion are familiar words used in other contexts, and they do appear throughout Shakespeare's works. Crab apples were often used as stocks. If you graft a decent apple onto a crab, the tree is actually transformed into something much better. In about 1550, uh, King Henry VIII told his fruit grower, Richard to set up some orchards near Tenham in Kent. And these were what you call um, mother orchards. And a mother orchard is one where the trees are planted mainly to supply cuttings rather than fruit. The idea is you can start more orchards with the same varieties of tree. Richard planted lots of trees. Uh, The apples were mainly pippins and rennets, which he got from France. Pippins are good flavoured eating apples and Rennets are similar, but they have a rougher skin and they store for a lot longer. And it seems at that time, France must have been much more advanced in apples than England. There were also cider orchards. uh, I think Americans call cider hard cider, uh, mainly in the southwest of England. And these orchards had been established much earlier since the Norman Conquest. And they became more important as the winters got colder. Uh, that's from the sixteenth century onwards, because the, as as it gets colder, the grapes were starting to disappear as the temperatures went down. But the apples actually like this; they they actually thrive in slightly colder temperatures.
0: So you mentioned pippins and crabs as well as renee apples, but what was the most common type of apple for Shakespeare's lifetime? If we were recreating a dish and we, from the 16th century, we wanted to use an authentic type of apple, which one would you recommend?
3: Well, it really depends on your income. So if you're a wealthy landowner and had your own orchards, you'd have sweet apples similar to those that we have today, but with a much wider range of flavor. You'd plants so that you had earlys, mids, and lates. Lates will store right through the winter, so an early apple is not going to be one that you can use in December. If you're one of the commoners or poor people who, with no land, you'd probably gather wild apples, mainly crabs, but you'd probably know of a good sweet apple in a hedge somewhere. They've been appearing in hedges for centuries. Or you might know someone at the big house nearby who might graft you a decent shrub. And if you were somewhere in between, so you're perhaps a yeoman, um, that's a, a small farmer, I suppose, you might have a couple of good trees. And a famous example of this is actually at Isaac Newton's home where there's a tree. I think it's the descendant of the original one. And of course, that's where he's alleged to have thought about gravity in the first place. And that's around that same time of um, our history. And at the time, of course, there were gardens for tradesmen and business people, such as William Shakespeare's father, John, who was a glove maker and a businessman. And he had a house in Stratford, which is often now known as um, Shakespeare's birthplace if you come to Stratford. So if you were lucky enough to have a garden, you'd probably have an apple tree yourself. But at the time, people didn't tend to eat apples raw. They tended to just cook them. And of course, again, it's according to your wealth, really, as to how you could do that. So most of the people were cooking the apples. And there were quite a few recipes. And roasted crab apples were added to ale or cider. And these roasted crab apples were put into the wassail bowl, which is a mulled alcoholic drink consumed around the 6th of January. And Shakespeare refers to that in Midsummer Night's Dream, of course, when Puck talks about a roasted crab. Sometimes lurk I in a gossip's bowl in very likeness of a roasted crab, which of course are not sea creatures, which most school children think of first of all when they hear that phrase. Because we don't tend to talk about crabs that often. And in Tempest, Caliban says, I prithee, let me bring thee where crabs grow, and I with my long nails will dig thee pignuts. So, pignut here is a conopodium majus, which is in the celery family, and the underground part, the tuber, is a bit like a chestnut. Um, I think uh, pignut means something a bit different in America. I think it's one of the hickories, which is um, referred to as a pignut. So, common types of apple in Shakespeare's time for wealthier people were the costards, the codlings, and the pnanes, which are categories of apple rather than particular varieties. At that time, there weren't that many named varieties. So the custards were ribbed but not particularly sweet and tended to be green or yellow um, fleshed. No, sorry, not fleshed, the skins. And they're best used for cooking or cider making. Codlings are similar but smoother, and there are still some around today with the, the name codling with them. The permains and the pippins are much better flavoured, have much better skin colour, often red or with a blush, and are much sweeter. And they're also still with us. And we do tend to eat those raw these days. And if we just go back to custards, there are references to costards in Shakespeare's plays because the word was even used as a slang term for a person's head. And Shakespeare gave the name to one of his characters in Love's Labour's Lost. And a related word, costermonger, a uh, costermonger was a fruit seller with a handcart or donkey cart. If you sold from a basket and didn't have a cart, you were a hawker. So Costermongers were usually quite tough men, hard-living people, roughly spoken, and not averse to a fight from time to time. We
0: know the apple was used for cooking, and you've mentioned cider, as well as a few people, at least those on the Silk Road, would eat them raw, but not maybe necessarily in England. But I wonder what other uses made the apple a popular fruit for 16th and
1: 17th century England? As we mentioned before, Henry VIII imported a lot of dessert apple trees from France And lots of new orchards were planted as a result of that. The cider apples already growing here were a bit different. And you can get this from the names. Um, They're called sharps, sweets, and bitters. And these are the three important flavors in cider. The flavors have to be in the right balance. And this isn't possible if you just use eating apples. You need some of the apples to have extra tannin and acid. And these come from bitters and sharps. You have to blend the apples to get the right flavor. And there's an old saying, the worse the apples, the better the cider. And there is a grain of truth in this. Eating apples used on their own make very poor cider. It tastes flabby because there's not enough tannin or acid. The other unusual thing about cider apples is some of them, especially the sweet ones, are high in cellulose. And if you try to eat one, to start with, you think, this is a a very nice apple. But then you chew and you chew and eventually you get a a mouthful of what feels like straw and you have to spit it out. Now, apples like this are great for pressing because when you crush them, the juice will run out easily and it will stop the press from blocking up. A popular cider apple was the fox whelp. And this is a bitter, sharp cider apple from the west of England. It's red skinned, picked in September and it was first recorded in 1600 probably comes from gloucestershire and it was used in the best ciders and sometimes crab apples were put into ciders for sharpness but if you overdid it the brew would become very harsh and rather unpleasant to drink there are some records of cider makers doing this and ending up in court but the the sour juice of the crab was in high demand it was called verjuice and it was used a lot in cooking especially in making sauces and it tastes rather like a flavoured vinegar, and those are quite popular today. You can still get the verjuice, but you have to get, go to a specialist supplier. As to other uses of apples, it's not just the fruit that matters. The, the crab apple is a very good source of timber. The wood is hard and compact. It was used to make gear wheels, that's cogs, in windmills and watermills. It was very good for turning on a lathe and it made excellent walking sticks. The wood from a sweet apple, on the other hand, isn't very good. It's a lot softer. It often attracts woodworm, and it tends to rot. We found one rather odd account of another use of apples, and for this I'll pass over to Alison.
3: Yes, it's in the Bear Garden of London, which was a popular place of entertainment, fairly close to the Globe Theatre, which, of course, is Shakespeare's Theatre. According to to contemporary accounts, music and fireworks were used and special effects. So a visitor from Germany called Leopold von Wedel was at the Bear Garden on August the 23rd in 1584, and he left a description of his visit. He describes the bulls and bears being baited and a horse being chased by dogs. There were people dancing and a man threw white bread to the crowd. Apparently they scrambled for it and then, a quote, Right over the middle of the place, a rose was fixed, the rose being set on fire by a rocket. Suddenly, lots of apples and pears fell out of it, down upon the people standing below. Whilst the people were scrambling for the apples, some rockets were made to fall down upon them out of the rose, which caused a great fright that amused the spectators. After this, rockets and other fireworks came flying out of all corners, and that was the end. Well, I have to say, I can't imagine what the rose was, but it sounds like a pretty, um, well, I'm not quite sure it's the kind of entertainment I would want to go to. But so, but after your play down at the Globe, you could go down to one of these bear gardens and goodness, any rose, what kind of entertainments you might get. It sounds like a pinata that they burst uh, yeah, that
0: open a- with a with a rocket or something, like a container, and they burst it.
3: Yeah, well, I was thinking of that, but there wasn't an awful lot of paper then, was there? So you think you kind can- of wondering what on earth they've used to make it with. But I could only find one reference to it. So I've got no idea. But um, it certainly sounds quite intriguing and a different use of apples anyway.
0: Yeah, and exciting to think that there was a scramble for them. You know, I don't even think my kids would scramble after apples and pears today. <laughs> they would they no. would fold out for candy and other such treats. But apparently for the 16th century, apples were on par with something that adults would scramble after to try and grab at mm. this celebration. Yeah.
3: And of course, the interesting thing about the white bread in that uh, bit before is that uh, I think I'm right in saying that at that time, white bread was a sign of completeness of wealth and affluence. And that if you were kind of lowly people, you'd have to have suffer the brown bread. And of course, I don't know about America, but that's totally reversed now that kind of white bread is treated as not being very good. And you want to eat, white, eat brown bread because it's much more healthy. But I think at that time, white bread would have been, you know, really kind of like giving you something expensive.
0: I know we think of the word apple as applying to the round edible fruit we enjoy in dishes like apple wassail and other, but were there other fruits that would have used the word apple that doesn't apply to the fruit that we think of today?
3: Well, that's an interesting question, which got me researching. There's a strong belief that the word apple was used to signify fruit with core or stones and not berries. So I have found a copy of a dictionary from 1708 which describes the apple as the fruit from an apple tree, but says the word is also used for all sorts of round fruit, as well as herbs of trees. I'm not quite sure what that means. And a slightly later dictionary also says it's the pupil of the eye. I found a dictionary from the early 1600s, but surprisingly, it did not include the word apple. So I think from that, we can assume that um, apple was being used in the same way in the 1600s. So then, I got thinking about the number of fruits in European languages which have apple in them, and wondered how they came about. I'll just explain some of these. So, one source I found said that the medieval English term for banana was apple paradise. Dates were finger eppler or finger apples, and cucumbers were earth apple or earth apples. At that time, the earth apple, the sorry, the potato was not known in Europe. And imagine these fruits have been seen by people perhaps involved in the Crusades taking place in the 12th and 13th century, when they've been out to places like the Holy Land and Turkey and perhaps North, North Africa. So the English word apple or epler is an Anglo-Saxon word. Pom has Latin roots, and that's, of course, a French word. And that meant any kind of fruit from a tree. Apfel is the Germanic word and melon is Greek and Arabic. And these are all used to form words you've got today, and they all meant fruits, just generally fruit originally. So melon led to mello, which is the Italian word for an apple. And that leads to malic, which is the acid in apples. An obvious example of a fruit that's not an apple in English is the pineapple. And I think we could all agree that it is a fruit that looks a bit like a pine cone. So that seems quite a good description. So it's kind of giving us this clue that apple just means fruit. Then the Latin pom has led to pomodora in Italian and pom d'or in French, which both mean gold fruits uh, as a translation and they both mean tomatoes. The modern French word is tomato and the the most common colour for tomato is red, but um, originally they were actually yellow fruits and um, we, we do grow a yellow tomato ourselves. Now we're going back to English, tomatoes were called love apples originally and that's not to be confused with apples of love, which were nightshades, according to the dictionaries I mentioned earlier, and uh, certainly be a bit more dangerous than a tomato. And if we go back to the word pom, we get pomme de terre and frites. neither of which are apples, but uh, pomme de terre are potatoes and frites are chips, as we call them in English. And I think that's French fries in America, because I think there's a, a distinction between chips and crisps. And in German, one of the dialect words for potato is erdapfel. So again, the apple of the earth or the fruit of the earth. As uh, so I guess, the reason England went for potato rather than um, erdapfel was because it comes from the Spanish potato. And we'd already had the earth apple, which was the cucumber, which is growing on the earth rather than in the earth. So we had to have a different word.
0: That makes sense. I mean, because as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, in French, the potato is called the pomme de terre. And that's also, you know, earth apple and so i i was thinking as you were talking why in english did we not call them earth apples and and we didn't because we already had one so that yeah. makes sense
3: yeah. yeah yeah it does make sense yes now, now if you go to back to germany there is still the Apfelzina, which as a straight translation is a chinese apple but is in fact an orange so again it's a chinese fruit rather than chinese apple i think and then you get pomegranate which is from early French, and that's a fruit with many seeds and grains. So certainly apple, or any of its translations, has been used to mean fruits. And of course, it should be remembered that a lot of those fruits would not have been common in Shakespeare's England, which is probably why there's not that many written records about them. So fruits such as dates and bananas were more likely to be grown in places like Spain. And relatives of our royal family came from Spain, due to the many royal alliances and marriages in those days. So they would have been seen by some people who'd been abroad, either the very rich or the soldiers on the various campaigns in Europe. Because obviously there's a lot of fighting during the Middle Ages across Europe. And then two other apples that we have in English are the thorn apple and the oak apples. Now, a thorn apple is a weed in the potato family full of alkaloids and very, very poisonous. And it contains medical compounds, which were once used to treat fever and pain. And there's a saying about thorn apples, which refers to being careful when you speak or write. Talk to be known by everyone who uses social media, I think. If you plant thorn apples, don't expect strawberries. So, and the oak apple is actually a, a gall, a wasp gall on an oak tree. So that's your question, really. It is worth considering when you're reading anything written in Shakespeare's time and they use the word apple, that they don't actually mean apple, they just mean fruits. And that's, of course, why you get things where where they talk about costards, codlings, pomains and pippins, because they're wanting to define what we consider an apple as opposed to just any of the...
0: it's fascinating to see all of these words like crabs and Pippin and all of these others that when we go to Shakespeare's plays and we see these words that we don't use today, it's amazing how many references to apples we now can see in in his plays. I'm, I can't wait to go back and dive through the text and try to find some of these. Now, speaking of apples traveling around. And I know you talked earlier about how they came to Europe on the Silk Road. I've read that it was in the 17th century that apples were first brought here to North America by English colonists. And I wonder who it was that planted the first apple orchard here in North America. And what kind of apples would they have brought over? Was there a particular kind that would make that trip across the Atlantic better than others?
2: Well,
1: there weren't actually any apples in America around 1600, apart from a few crab apples. But the colonists traveling there would have known from sailors that they needed fruit on the voyage. On a long voyage, you would, if you didn't eat any fruit, you would probably succumb to scurvy, which is a nasty gum inflammation. And you'd have to carry a special sort of apple on the journey if you wanted to use apples, because you'd have to use those which will store for a long time. Early apples simply wouldn't make the journey. And these late-storing apples were packed in bran or sawdust or sand. In the 1600s, Europe's hedgerows must have been scattered with apples of varying quality, uh, and the habit of collecting the good ones was quite common. So when the colonists first went to America, it would be natural to save every seed from the apples and eventually plant it and it's known that apple seeds from Europe were germinating in colonist plantations along the east coast of America in the early 1600s. A few grafted trees were also taken across. The first American apple orchard was planted in 1625, and it was planted on Beacon Hill in Boston by William Blackstone. And later, he moved to Rhode Island and planted more orchards his trees all came from seeds, so they were all new varieties. Though so Once he had a variety in an orchard, if it was a good one, he would tend to, to graft it and copy it exactly. The settlers tended to re- rely on getting trees and seeds rather than grafting because the cold winters meant that the germination was unusually good. And It turned out that the grafted trees that they brought with them, the European ones, didn't much like the climate. In 1629, the Boston Bay Company placed a big order for apple seeds from England. And by the 1640s, apples were pretty well established in the USA. Nearly all landowners planted apple trees. There was a real explosion of new varieties encouraged by the low temperatures. Lots of new seedlings appeared. And apples were soon well established in Virginia. And some of the early ones to be given names were Roxbury Russet, High Top Sweet, and Rhode Island Greening. And the first and last of these are still in existence.
0: Now, you mentioned that apples do very well when it's cold. And I am curious how that plays into the celebration of Christmas time for Shakespeare's lifetime, specifically with a drink called Apple Wassail. It was made, of course, from apples. But winters were very harsh in England for Shakespeare's lifetime. And I don't think many of us think of fruit as something that travels well in the cold. So as how were apples able to be harvested and stored at this time of year to be able to make apple wassail in the dead of winter?
3: Well, actually, there were plenty of apples available at Christmas time to make apple wassail. We mentioned earlier, there are three types of apple, the early, the mids and the late. So the earlys are ready from July to mid-September, but they only tend to keep for a day or two so they would they wouldn't keep then we have mids which are picked from mid september to october and last from a fortnight to a month and they lose their flavour fairly quickly but the late's are picked in late october november or even later and they will store for a long time sometimes until may or june and they don't particularly need anything special to do it a barn would do or um, the bottom of a house anything as long as it's fairly fairly cool and fairly cold cold and of course there wasn't central heating in those days so houses didn't get warm anyway. So the apples used for making apple wassail were the ones that were picked much later, still in fresh condition at Christmas and New Year and in fact we grow several apples which are not even ready for picking until mid-January. So there were plenty of apples around in hedgerows and so on. Wassailing is a curious English tradition It consists of drinking and singing in the orchard in the depths of winter to basically bless the trees. So the drink, the apple wassail, is a hot, mulled fruit punch, generally containing alcoholic cider, roasted crab apples, brandy perhaps, cinnamon and other spices. I think at that time, on about the 6th of January, which is, I suppose, the end of the Christmas season, at night, a group of men would go into the orchard with their wassail bowl, Slices of bread or toast would be laid at the roots of the trees, sometimes tied to the branches. Cider would be poured over the tree roots, and large amounts of wassail and cider would be drunk. There would be reciting of incantations, noises singing to the trees, and lots of shouting and banging around to get rid of any evil spirits from the orchards And this was to ensure a good crop for the next year. But there was actually also another kind of wassailing, which was house to house wassailing, where people went from door to door or particularly to the more affluent houses in the area, singing and offering a drink from the wassail bowl in exchange for gifts. I suppose a bit like in this country, carol singing, or a bit like trick and treats around uh, Halloween. So wassailing still happens a little bit today, and basically it's an excuse for an interesting night out in an orchard to get drunk and to drink lots and make a lot of noise.
0: Well, it sounds like a fascinating piece of of history and an interesting way to think about the celebrations of the season, but also fun to know that apples would have been available in a great abundance. And I know that we've heard so much about apples up to this point that we're excited to explore this history further and explore the history of this fruit in Shakespeare's lifetime further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more?
1: It's difficult, but the best popular apple book that uh, I've come across is the one by Joan Morgan, and Alison Richards, and it's simply called The Book of Apples. And it contains detailed information about the history of apples and a survey of over 2,000 varieties. If you're interested in how apples evolved over the millennia, and you know a little bit about DNA, you you will also like the story of the apple. And this is by Barry Juniper and David Mabberley, and it describes where the apple came from, and why the sweet cultivated apple is so different from all of the other wild apple species with tiny bitter fruits. It was thought until recently that sweet apples evolved by careful selection and breeding by humans, but DNA testing has shown that this is not true. The sweet apple existed in the fruit forests anyway, and it's just travelled to us. We're also online at uh, suttonelms.org.uk with videos of our apple tastings, along with information about English apples and our apple breeding work.
0: I definitely recommend that you check out their website and learn more about the history of apples and the work that they're doing there to preserve English apples. It's a really fascinating look, so we will link to their website as well as to the two books that they've recommended. If you'd like to explore the history of apples further, those are great places to begin. Now, Nigel and Alison, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those.
1: The thing I would miss the most would be music, because I'm a keen pianist, and I would like to take a printed copy of, of Handel's harpsichord suites so I could read the music and at least hear it in my head. And what about you, Alison?
3: Well, having done the research and finding about, out about all those words with Apple, it got me intrigued to, into other words as well. And so I was wondering if there was a, a compilation of dictionaries, one from each century, so I could see how words had changed their meaning over the years. But as I don't actually think that exists, I'm also very keen on um, early music and Handel. And I wondered if I could have a, a choral score, and probably Messiah would be my favourite to have. Um, we both enjoy early music, uh, me as a singer and Nigel as a pianist. You never know, I might even be able to sing some of the parts of his harpsichord, sweets.
0: Well, it sounds like you'd be well set up on your deserted island with both of those selections, one with the music and one with the singing. You'd make a grand time of it, I think. I think so. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: We've spent many years finding and reintroducing the fourteen. 14- heritage apples from Leicestershire, which is where we live. And we're really pleased that we've reintroduced local apples to the county. Most of these now are available to buy as trees, or you can construct them if you're lucky enough to come to one of our grafting workshops. We now breed new apple varieties in partnership with a big nursery in England, and we produce several several hundred seedlings a year. And we're aiming to produce apples, which are a bit different. And many of our fruits are like this. That's one of our apples. This one is called rosette. We're using it as one of our uh, parents. And if I cut it through, let's just cut it through here so you can see.
0: Oh, wow. It's red on the inside. How pretty. Wow. I've never seen an apple that looks like that.
1: A lot of people haven't. They have a, a berry-like flavour. They have a like a mixture of apple and orange or apple and cranberry. They've got a, a, t- a taste that most apples don't have.
0: That's fascinating. Now, so are all 14 of the apples from the Leicestershire County apples that way?
1: None of the Leicestershire apples are like that.
0: Oh, just the rosette. Okay. It's
1: just rosette and a few of the others that we're using in our breeding programme. And we're producing lots of strange... Coloured apples, uh, which we're hoping some of them will be commercially valuable. Uh, so, we're aiming to produce apples which are a bit different. These get sent to trial plots where they are assessed for a range of qualities. And hopefully, in about 20 years, one or two of them will be new Leicestershire varieties. Uh, we're also looking for another sort of apple, those which can be stored for a long time without needing to be cold storage, and, uh, without needing to go into cold storage. This is especially relevant when energy is becoming so expensive.
0: That is fascinating. I can't wait to see what comes from all of your research and work there into the development of these apples. Nigel and Alison Deegan, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us the history of apples from Shakespeare's lifetime and explaining for us what kinds of varieties he would have had and how they would have been used. This was a really fun look at this exciting topic of the world of apples, and I thank you for being here to share it with us.
3: Thank you well, for
0: asking thank it. you. Yep,
3: thank, thank
0: you. Soon. I've gathered up visuals and artifacts that go along with our conversation today, including images of apples and a recipe for apple wassail if you'd like to try and cook that dish yourself. You can explore these extra tidbits related to today's show, as well as find links to their research and resources that we talk about today, all packed into the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 284. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 284. Speaking of trying out Apple Wassail for yourself, we have an entire activity kit about the history of Apple Wassail and how to make it yourself at home that coordinates with today's show. You can purchase this kit by itself inside Experience Shakespeare, or if you're planning to use two or more kits in a month, maybe for your classroom, for example, you might want to consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Members at Experience Shakespeare get access to a library of hands on history activity kits that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Each kit is designed to be completed with items you may already have at home or can easily find at your local market or store. They come with a video tutorial, step by step instructions, a supply list, and each one coordinates with Shakespeare's plays and specific episodes of our show, like this one, all about apples. If you love diving into the 17th century and really trying out a piece of Shakespeare's history for yourself, then you will Love, experience Shakespeare. Find out more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Inside today's episode, Nigel and Allison share with us visual samples from their orchard of the apples that they're growing there in England, including the rosette, which has that red flesh on the inside that you hear me talk about. If you would like to see the apple that Nigel is holding up, you can watch the video version of today's podcast inside our patrons area. Patrons of That Shakespeare Life power the work we do here and allow all of the research and connections that we make here to bring you this excellent history every week. They make it possible. If you would like to have access to special bonuses like video versions of our podcast as well as the chance to participate in the production of our show by choosing topic ideas and submitting your own questions to be asked during upcoming interviews then you can join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash life that's patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that shakespeare life is researched and produced by me cassidy cash our audio engineer is gary mayholm That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.